as we begin to inhabit this new home for retreats, I'd like to speak this evening about sanctuary and refuge. For those who come the last few weeks on Monday night, I talked uh, about the important task that we have in spiritual life of sorting through all the ideals and the language and the way that we imagine or hear or read we're supposed to be until we can find that wisdom that's really true in our own experience for ourselves. So the Buddha's last words to people were to make of yourself a light, be a lamp unto yourself. Bring your own wisdom to fruition in your heart. Now one of the central teachings in the Buddhist tradition is that of refuge. One often begins a retreat or a period of practice taking refuge in Buddha and in the Buddha within oneself to awaken our own knowing heart, our own Buddha nature, to see every being we meet as a Buddha, taking refuge in Dharma or the word for the Dharma means the truth, the eternal law, the Tao, the way things are, refuge in the Sangha, in the interconnectedness or the community of all that live. And one aspect of this refuge that is quite central is the notion of sanctuary. Sanctuary as a place of freedom, as a place uh, that guards our well-being, a place where we can take refuge. When we opened this building, this meditation hall, a couple of weeks ago, the first time, um, the first retreat, um, as the nearly full moon was rising and the sun was setting, we began with some chants that invited the spirits of the forest and the angels and the devas and the unseen beings of every kind and every tradition to come and bring their blessings. And then a chant of the first teachings of the Buddha called the turning of the wheel, um, whose essence is that it's possible for every single human being to awaken and find freedom in their heart if they look for it. When you go into a temple in Asia, especially um, through the gates of some of these forest monasteries and other temples, there are often guardian figures at the gates, these kind of uh, wild-looking characters that are the guardians of the temple and that in some way can also represent the forces of anger and desire that one has to pass through to enter into the sanctuary. And the sanctuary of the temple is a place where the heart or the wisdom is no longer at the mercy of anger or fear or greed, no longer in the thrall of those forces, but a place in which the heart is at rest. This is outer sanctuary. And in the forest monastery where I had the privilege of training as a monk for some years, you would go in through the gateway of the forest monastery 
and it would become very still immediately. Big old ancient teak trees and huge old vines in this forest and little paths connecting one monk's hut or one nun's cottage to a central courtyard with the meditation hall. And in particular, I remember being there, because the period I lived there was during the Vietnam War. At night you could see the bombers going overhead and the flashes of lights, because we were right on the border of Laos and Cambodia from the bombing. I remember being there when some friends came to visit who were working in Laos and Vietnam as a part of the Quaker Peace Group. And they, I knew them because I'd worked on medical teams in the same region, the Mekong River Valley, when I was in Peace Corps. And they came and they said, what do you do sitting here? You know, there's this war going on. You have to go out and make a difference and stop it. They came for a week uh, to stay in the monastery. And they said, you're all just sitting around while this war is happening. What good is it? But after the week was over, they understood something. It was that monastery had been there for years and years, and it was a sanctuary of peace. If you've ever been to a place where there's an active war, people go crazy. They will steal anything, they will destroy their own temples and homes and sell things that you couldn't imagine they would sell or betray people just to survive. It's horrible um, and frightening. And very close to that, there was this sanctuary where if you lost your wallet or your watch or something, someone would pick it up and save it for you. It was a place where people bowed when you came in and said, how can we serve you? And it was as if it was a living library of the human heart that no matter what the outer circumstances were, no matter the cycles of war and peace and gain and loss, all the changes that happen in a society, this was a place that you could come and remember this possibility of respect, of compassion, of well-being. In that same spirit, some years ago, I visited one of the great temples in Hawaii that I talk about sometimes on Monday night. It's called Pua Honua Ohonanao, which is the Hawaiian name for the temple of refuge on the coast of the big island. Um, and in this place, um, it's, it, there's a lot of mana, there's a lot of power, just as there was in this forest monastery. You walk in the forest monastery and everything just becomes silent. You feel like you're in some ancient, ancient grove. And here, there was this blue ocean and these big waves and huge black volcanic rock stone walls and the sacred pools for the ali'i, for the chiefs and the queens and the places, the dwellings for the kahuna priests. And you could enter that place and feel again the quality of sanctuary. And part of what was remarkable about that sanctuary is that it was a temple of forgiveness. That whatever you had done wrong in that society, no matter the worst thing, the worst taboo that you broke, even if you killed someone, if you could get yourself into that temple somehow, you would be put through a process of purification 
and forgiveness and forgiven completely and sent back. And I began to wonder, I was in there, does this place still work? You know, can you still do this? (laughs) And even more, imagining what it would be like if we built temples of forgiveness instead of as many prisons as we are building in this country, what that society would be like. When one enters a temple, a forest monastery, a sanctuary, it touches something different than our ordinary consciousness. Thomas Merton, writing about Gethsemane Abbey and the other Trappist abbeys, he said, people often misunderstand what we do in our monasteries. Some say the monks are justified there because they practice a scientific kind of agriculture or because the monastery is some kind of dynamo of prayer that serves the world around it. But these excuses actually compromise the real meaning of the monastery. Actually, what matters about the monastery is precisely that it is radically different from the world. The apparent pointlessness of the monastery in the eyes of the world is exactly what gives it a reason for existing. In a world of noise, confusion, and conflict, it is necessary that there be places of silence, of inner discipline, and peace. Not the peace of mere relaxation, but the peace of the heart's clarity and love. So a sanctuary is a place to be connected to your own true nature, to your heart, to that wisdom that you carried from before your parents were born. And in the busyness of our culture in our days, it's good to be reminded of the possibility of freedom in the heart that's independent of gain and loss and pleasure and pain, of that place of timelessness that we all know but forget at times. I see it even with my daughter who's 13 and a half, 14 years old. And she says, Dad, you know, I've got too much homework and I've got the girls' chorus and then I've got the plays and I, you know, there are too many good things and I don't have any time for myself. And I think this is 13 years old. Do you know what I mean? And it's not just her, but it's so many of us. To come into a sanctuary is a reality check. There's a story of a Sufi master who used to teach by the side of the Ganges or one great river in India. And some person who heard that he was a great teacher came and as a symbol of the devotion they brought to ask for his wisdom and teachings, brought two huge and lustrous pearls and said, here's the, this is a symbol of the wholeness I seek and, you know, of my love of the truth and what I hope to receive. It's my offering to you. And the master took them and said, yes, please sit and we can talk about truth together. He said, they are lovely. He kind of held them lightly and as they talked, one of them slipped out of his hands and rolled down the bank into the river. And the man was distraught, all that he'd done to get them. And he went over there and he started pawing around in the water and trying to find it. He said, did you see exactly where it went? And the master said, I'm not sure it was over that way somewhere. He said, could you show me? And the master took the second pearl and threw it. It went about there, as it plopped into the water. 
sometimes we need to go to a place where there is no um, ambition, where there's no plan, where there's no expectation, where we can listen to our hearts, to ourselves in a different way. It is the stillness between the notes that makes the music. It is the space between the bars that holds the tiger. So sanctuary is an invitation to be fallow. It's a Sabbath of the heart, if you will. And our culture, which had Sabbath as part of its moral heritage for years and years and years and years, um, lost it just in the last couple of decades. Remember, even when most of you were younger, things stopped on. There wasn't 24-hour banking, 24-hour shopping, you know, 24-hour everything. And people actually stopped and took a breath. Ah, it's a day to not work. And how healing that is. It's really a day to listen inwardly to that space between the notes. And the blessings come in sanctuary, not from anything that's given, this great wisdom or these great teachings, but more from letting go, from opening, from listening inside. You know, in the Greek myths, there's a story that relates to sanctuary. Um, And I tell it because we have this mistaken impression in our culture that the more you can do and the further you can travel and the fuller your life is, somehow the freer you are. If you could travel everywhere and see everything, you'd be free. Basically, what you would be is tired at the end of that, but it's another story. There's a different kind of freedom that comes not from movement, but that comes when we become still. So this is the myth or the story of Daphne, who was seen as one of the faces of Diana or Artemis. And she lived deep in the woods far away from civilization, from civilized life. And she was often seen running through the trees as a songstress, making songs as a huntress with bow and arrow. And it happened that Daphne ran around through some of the most beautiful forests in Greece at a time when Apollo descended from Mount Olympus. And he saw her and fell in love with her, as happens in all these Greek myths somehow. (laughs) And he began to pursue her in order to possess her. He tried to testify to his love and convince her and so forth. But she'd heard some things about Apollo, handsome though he was. (laughs) And she was afraid somehow that he would capture her. And so she ran, and he ran after her, and she ran faster. She was a very fast runner. And he ran after her, still closer. And she came finally to the river, and the father of Daphne was the river god. And she called to him, Father, Father, help me, save me. And he said, Come here, my child, put your feet in the water. And Daphne let her feet touch the edge of the river, and in a moment was turned into a willow tree, or a tree like that, where her branches could sway in the wind, and she was no longer subject to the uh, pursuit of Apollo. Now, when I read this story, um, I thought about 
the part of myself, all of us, that loves to run free. And it's a beautiful thing to do. But there's another kind of freedom, and maybe even a deeper one, that it points to. And that's the freedom to be where we are, to really be present for whatever comes to us in this life, to not seek or run or move or make or do. The freedom of being. Wordsworth writes about it. You know, the maids at the wheel, the weaver at his loom, the nuns in their convent, and the hermits in their cells. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. That there's a freedom that is indomitable in our human spirit. And to come into sanctuary returns us to that place. And if we don't do it, if we run around and forget ourselves, we forget our hearts, we forget our bodies, we don't pay attention, then something will remind us the way Apollo chased Daphne. And sometimes it's a loss or an illness, but something will come if we don't listen and remind us of what we have not paid attention to. This is from Alice Miller. She writes about the body. She says, the truth about our childhood is stored up in our body. And although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, our conceptions confused, and our body tricked with medication. But someday our body will present its bill, for it is as incorruptible as a child who still whole in spirit will accept no compromises or excuses, and it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading its truth. Sanctuary. Coming back to a place where we really attend to the depths of our being. And as we do when we come into sanctuary, if you come here on retreat, you'll see We also meet the unexpected, because usually through our life we're doing the expected, and we have it all written down for the next week or month or whatever, what we have to do. But to open in sanctuary is to open to something greater than our plans or our expectations, to listen with a mindful heart. You know that phrase from the Ojibwe Indians, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. The sanctuary has those winds. We're reminded of what carries us. And it's usually a surprise. I'll tell you another story. It's mostly because I like telling stories, but (laughs) maybe there'll be something salutary in it. (laughs) That's about this kind of mystery. In the Bible there is a story of King Solomon being visited by the Queen of Sheba. Everybody's heard about this. Makeda was her name. But in the Abyssinian, which is the Ethiopian Bible, there's more details of the story. That's because that's where she came from. And the Queen was a lover of wisdom herself and decided to visit King Solomon because she heard that he was the wisest of all humans on the earth. 
and she was known to be gracious and beautiful and strong, a true wise woman. So she wanted to go and test Solomon. This is how the story is told. And so she took with camels and elephants and attendants chests of jewels and gold and a number of questions that she had come with to see if he was really as wise as he was supposed to be. And asked this series of tests and questions and found that he was fantastic, in fact, that they had a great friendship and a, and a, a, a joyful connection as king and queen. Um, and I somehow imagine that she was lonely as a queen, as he probably was as a king, even though he had all those wives, or maybe because of it. Um, <laughs> but that he could have a real conversation with this person who was his equal and his peer. So she stayed for six months with Solomon, learning and teaching both. And then, as the story is told, on the last night, Solomon asked if she would rest in his bedchamber, which she had not done. She had resisted. And she said she would agree only if he would not force his affections upon her. And he said, all right, he would, as he would give his kingly promise to that, but that she had to make a promise to him as well. And that promise was that he would keep that agreement if she would not take anything from his house, anything of value from his home, without his permission. She said, naturally, you know. So then it was the last evening, and Solomon caused a great banquet to appear, as one can when you're king. Fantastic banquet. And at this huge banquet, he made sure that what was served was wonderful curries, tempting dishes, particularly salty and spicy. So then they retired to the king's bedchamber, Solomon and Sheba. And he appeared to go to sleep, as she did. And then in the middle of the night, she woke with a great thirst. After all, they're in the desert. And so she reached over to the side of the bed and took the pitcher of crystal pitcher of water and poured it and began to drink it. And he sat up in bed and said, Oh, my queen, is not in this great vast desert water one of the most precious of all our possessions? <laughs> she had to admit it was. And as she left, she left pregnant, as the story goes. You know how these things go. If you don't understand, go back and read your Bible. It's full of that stuff, right? And she returned to Abyssinia, to Ethiopia, and bore a son, who then went back and was trained in wisdom in King Solomon's court, and then returned to the princely kingdom of Ethiopia. And that kingdom, the heirs of Solomon and Sheba, or so it's said, existed for 2,000 years, all the way until Emperor Haile Selassie, until the 1970s, was it? Haile Selassie was there. He was known as the Lion of Judah, and he was the last in the line of the descendants of Solomon and Sheba. I tell that story in part um, because um, you never know what's going to happen. 
when you visit, when you come looking for wisdom, you know. I don't mean necessarily that you're going to leave pregnant, although it depends where you go looking for wisdom, that's possible. Mm -hmm. But that the openness that sanctuary provides and asks is for something new to be born in you that is unexpected, something that you hear more deeply from your soul or your heart or your spirit. Sanctuary is a place that holds the human and the divine together as sacred. And when Thomas Merton wrote of the monastery, remember that last phrase, in a world of noise, confusion, and conflict, it's necessary there be places of silence, of inner discipline and peace, not the peace of relaxation, but the peace of the heart's clarity and love based on renunciation. In a world of tension and breakdown, it is necessary for there to be men and women who seek to integrate their inner lives not by avoiding anguish and running away from problems, but by facing them in their naked reality and their ordinariness. The seemingly fruitless existence of the renunciate is therefore centered on the ultimate meaning and highest value. It loves the truth for its own sake, and it gives away everything in order to hear the word of the truth and act upon it. So it's not that it's necessarily easy. And you'll see that when you come on retreat the first days, there's the unfinished business of our life that comes, the things of our body. I love reading the old Zen poems of Ryokan, favorite poet of the Japanese, because he's so honest. He says, the vicissitudes of this world are like the movements of the clouds. Fifty years are nothing but a long dream. Sparse rain, in my hermitage at night, I clutch my robe and lean against the empty window. Looking up, I see the setting sun. Unbearable loneliness. His Zen poem, it's just there with his loneliness. And everybody knows that in his sanctuary. But then he can write, first days of spring, blue sky, bright sun, everything is gradually becoming fresh and green again. Carrying my bowl, I walk slowly to the village. For a time, I play catch while the children sing. Passersby point and laugh at me, asking, what is the reason for such foolishness? No answer I give, only a deep bow. Even if I replied, they would not understand. Look around, there is nowhere to go beside this moment. So he has his tears and his joys, and he bows to each in his poems. To this day, the invitation of the Buddha to the sons and daughters of good families, to noble, he says, "To, to you who are nobly born, which is the son or daughter of the Buddha, that you are. Come and join in the holy life, in the life that is lived from the values of the heart. And that's the invitation of sanctuary, of this retreat center that so many people have helped to build together. They're the outer forms of sanctuary. 
And of course, in the simplest way, meditation itself, our own body becomes the sanctuary. As we sit and walk and pay attention with compassion and a real openness, we reawaken a sense of what is simple and natural and sacred. Sacred because we hear it with an open heart. To meditate is so simple. It's really just to stop and listen. The line from Rumi is, pay regular visits to yourself. It's that simple. And when you come on a retreat and begin to pay attention mindfully, first there's a kind of review. There's the tension of the body. There's all the unfinished business, the memories, the plans, the things that you forgot about. And you begin to feel the fears that are carried and the the speed and all that that's held within the body. Or maybe you feel the emotions, the grief that's been there from some loss that we've been too busy to, to weep for. Or the love and longing that's been there a long time, but we haven't had the space to touch again and know this is something I want to really do something with, a beauty in my life. And so we begin to sit and weep or laugh, feel the fears and the pain and love. And Ajahn Amro, who was here on the opening day, this English monk, he said, you know, when people come here to meditate, they're really going to suffer more, you know. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, because it's so comfortable, they won't have anything to blame it on. (laughs) They'll just have themselves. So the first part of retreat is this kind of quieting down and letting go and opening and release and all this stuff comes out. And the breath becomes a kind of inner sanctuary, the rise and fall of the breath, in and out, the awareness, the rhythm of our changing life. And gradually, as we sit and walk and pay attention, instead of there being an outer sanctuary, It's as if our heart itself becomes the place of refuge. We can meet what arises with loving kindness. We can bow to the loneliness as Ryokan does. We can bow to longing. We can feel the excitement that comes. All the things that make up our humanity. It's wonderful to come back to that. And it's so simple. It doesn't even take very long. The Zen poet Gensei writes, Trailing my stick, I go down to the stream at the garden edge. I dabble in the flow, delighted by the shallowness of the water, gaze at the flagging, admire how firm the stones are in the bottom. The point of life is to know what is enough. Why envy those otherworldly immortals? With the happiness held, in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. There's a kind of happiness that is your birthright. And it's not made by anything or conditioned on anything. It comes in our being, in our essence, when we sit, when we're still, when we listen. One other element in this sense of sanctuary or refuge that's worth speaking of 
is that it cannot only take place in nature with the trees and, you know, walking in the forest and being in the mountains or by the ocean and the streams. And those open us in ways that are really important. But also there is a sanctuary that requires uh, the love that others can offer to us and that we can offer to them. Part of what made this so beautiful, especially the opening day, which wasn't our real opening, we're still waiting to get ready to do that, but it was a beginning of it. We had board, teachers, staff, various committee people come. What I was the most happy about is that people stood, we put people in the center of this big circle in the room who'd worked on it and named them and acknowledged the kinds of things they'd done. Four years of design committee meetings or you know, countless gifts council meetings or incredible work with organizing volunteers. And people stood up and said, I would do it again. I would do it again because it turned out so beautifully. There was this tremendous excitement. No one knew really how it would turn out. But most of all, they said, I would do it again because I loved the people that I was working with. And it was such a sense of real community. And part of what made that real community was that it was in the service of something greater than oneself. I've lived in different kinds of communities, some intentional communities, where people just together get together because they want to be in community. Um, I should give you a little warning about that kind. Um, it's okay for a while, but it actually, it, it's not very, you know, you end up having countless meetings about whether you're going to have tofu or tempeh for dinner because people are there for their own needs. And after a while, it starts to feel like your own family again, only worse. It's true. Real community, in the sense that ancient community was, sangha, satsang, the community of village life, is the community that comes together in service of something higher than one's own needs, in service of the spirit or the common good or the, the, the life that we live on this earth. And part of the beauty of that day was hearing people's joy at being in that kind of community. So that's another aspect to sanctuary. And part of what made the Temple of Refuge in Hawaii so powerful, part of it was the the place itself, but part of it was the image that there were priests who would meet you there no matter what you had done. And hear your confession and offer you forgiveness. I remember talking with Ramdas in the early years of teaching in Naropa Institute in the 70s. And he used to do a practice of Kali fire at night in these retreats where we would make this big bonfire and then have people write down the things that they needed to be forgiven for or needed to let go of and come to throw it in the fire. But you couldn't throw it in the fire until you had told another human being first. And he would stand there and bow to people and then listen to them like a confessor as each person would come and say what they needed forgiveness for. So that we offer in that spirit sanctuary to one another. And it's a big part of this tradition as well, the ceremonies in the monasteries and temples of forgiveness practice, 
where the abbot gets down, takes the lowest seat and says, this year, what have I done that I need to ask your forgiveness for? Please tell me. I really want to understand where everyone is equal. So part of the sacred place is that that can be offered and received. I read an article actually uh, last year about a man in New York City who um, calls himself Mr. Apology. And he set up the Apology Hotline in New York. It was partly, I don't know, it's like his doctoral dissertation or something like that, right? You know how New York is. Anyway. And he put ads in different papers around the Village Voice and whatever. Call Mr. Apology on the Mr. Apology Hotline and apologize and you will be forgiven. And then he put a tape recorder on it. This is true. And he had floods of calls, hundreds and hundreds of calls every week. Um, some criminals, you know, saying, I've done this and this and this and please forgive me. You know, some incredibly poignant stories. Um, some of them he, pub- he changed the circumstances a bit and then published them in the New York Times. And it's so amazing because here's this mechanical thing at a distance and it still had meaning for all those people to call Mr. Apology. You know, the images, whether it's the Tibetan Book of the Dead or the Egyptian books of the dead or the Hindu teachings about death, um, many of these different spiritual and meditative traditions say that at death there will be a kind of judgment. And the pictures are of Lord Yama, the the king of death, or of Mat in the Egyptian Book of the Dead who weighs your soul against a feather and so forth. Everybody's heard these images. What people discover in deep meditation, and of course it's true in the near-death experiences that people report and come back from, is that you know who the judge is at the end of your life? I'm sorry to say. (laughs) The judge, the judgment does happen. One really does look back. And the judge is oneself. So that a true sanctuary or refuge becomes a place of both honesty and mercy, where renewal, letting go, forgiveness, compassion are what reign. And in all the things of our humanity that we do, they're all seen and known for what they are and honored and yet some deeper possibility is discovered in the midst of them. Suzuki Roshi, Zen master, says, suppose your children are suffering from a terrible disease and you don't know what to do. You can't lie in bed. Normally the most comfortable place for you would be a warm, comfortable bed with the covers over your head. But now because of your mental agony, you cannot even rest. You may pace up and down, in and out, but this doesn't help. Actually, the best way to relieve this mental suffering, even in such a confused state of mind, is to simply stop and sit down. If you have no experience of meditation in this kind of difficult situation, you are not yet fully a a Zen student. No other activity will appease your suffering. In the other restless positions, You have no power to accept the truth of your difficulties. But if you have really learned to meditate, 
you discover that your body and mind have an enormous power to accept things as they are, whether agreeable or disagreeable. In continuous practice, under a succession of agreeable and disagreeable situations, you will realize the marrow of meditation and acquire its true strength. What makes a sanctuary, a refuge, a place of retreat, or the sanctuary in ourselves, in our hearts, is that it becomes a time and place, a Sabbath, to step out of gain and loss, to step out of praise and blame, of pleasure and pain, to step out of the battles we fight with the world and with ourselves. You can feel how many battles there are in yourselves. Into the heart, into that space of awareness and compassion, that lets all the other waves rise and fall and rest like the ocean in this mystery of being, of awareness itself, of freedom. And every tradition speaks of it. I'm told that it used to be that there was a sanctuary near every wise community, a place to go for renewal, a temple. Dalai Lama made an offer to the Chinese in the United Nations that the entire country of Tibet become a world sanctuary, that no weapons be allowed there, that no animals be allowed to be killed, and that it be the first nation that's a sanctuary for life on this earth. Imagine if we could make sanctuaries in Kosovo and former Yugoslavia, or in the West Bank, or in our inner cities, if we could use our churches again as sanctuaries and our temples. I hope that this place over many, many years serves as that kind of sanctuary for all who come here, that it's a place of healing and remembering of the heart, that it becomes a ground where even as you enter, you know that there is compassion and forgiveness in the walls, in the plants, in the ways that people move. This strange looking round wooden thing here on the other end of the platform with me is a prayer wheel, the first prayer wheel made in Marin County as far as I know. Maybe one of the first ever made in America, made in Woodacre by the Wood, Woodacre Architectural um, Turning Service that usually makes, you know, Greek and Roman columns. I went in to talk to these guys who were friends, said, do you think you could make a prayer wheel? They said, well, we've never seen one. So I made a little sketch, and this is what they did. Said, make it beautiful. This will go on the gate, you know that gate with the big circle in it that you pass through to come? It will go right next to the gate so that as you walk in here, you can turn the prayer wheel. And it'll have painted on it all these prayers. And then inside, we're going to fill it with people's blessings. So you can see in the courtyard, there are all those little white banners. That was from the last retreat, where people wrote prayers to go inside the prayer wheel. There's another pile of ribbons. You're welcome to take one home with you. 
And you don't have to have a ribbon if we run out of them. You can use a piece of paper or your own thing and bring it on Monday night. We'll make a basket to collect your prayers and blessings. And that way everybody that comes in here will turn your prayer and send it out to all the directions. I hope this place feels like that temple in Hawaii, that when people come they say, oh, finally, I feel like I'm home again. And more than that, I hope that it inspires you and me and everyone who comes to reconnect with that sanctuary of our own true nature, that freedom the Buddha called nirvana, that is the freedom beyond all the changing conditions of the world, that place of unalterable love and openness that sees birth and death and joy and sorrow come and go and loves in the midst of it all. That's what I hope. And I guess I end this evening with a bit of a passage from the Tao Te Ching. Which one? Yes. Rushing into action, you fail. Trying to grasp things, you lose them. Forcing a project to completion, you ruin what was already almost ripe. Therefore, the master takes action by letting things take their course. She remains as calm at the end as in the beginning. She has nothing and has therefore nothing to lose. What she desires is non-desire, to unlearn. She simply reminds people of whom they have always been. She cares about nothing but the Tao, and thus she cares for all things. I hope that as people come here and experience the silence and the beauty of the land and the care that so many people put to create this place, that they return to that Tao in themselves. Let's sit for just a minute. And as you sit quietly, a few reflections. Where are your places of sanctuary or refuge in this life? Remember and sense what it's like to be in that place. How could you extend that spirit of sanctuary more fully in your life? Let yourself know.
And in that place, what healing asks forgiveness and mercy? And what beauty and inspiration you asks to shine forth in the world? Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanahiko Pachatangwe Titapu Vinyuhiti Let's chant together the simple word Namo, which is to bow to, to pay respects to, And as we chant it, we'll chant it nine times to end the evening. Let yourself bow to whatever asks for your respect in yourself, in the world, the spirit of sanctuary. Namo. Namo with harmony. Namo. Namo. Blessings for this week ahead. Treasure yourself. Find places of sanctuary in your life. And come back here again, too, and use this as one of your spiritual homes. Next week, Joseph Goldstein will do the Dharma talk. We'll be back in our usual home down below. And also, two people need rides. Can anyone offer a ride to San Francisco? Raise your hand if you can. Come up here and meet by the prayer wheel. Can anyone offer a ride further than that down toward San Mateo? Anyone can? Raise your hand. Yes? Someone? So again, come up here to the prayer wheel, the two people. See you. Thank you so much for coming this evening. It's really a pleasure. Enjoy.